Rising. Thanks for kicking off the week with us. Hello, Brianna. Hello, Robbie. How are you doing? It's good to be back. We had a uh, fun hang out a little bit over the weekend. We did. And I think we're going to bring this. Uh... We finally recovered from it. <laughs> I, was I was energized by the experience, Robbie. But yes, the recovery is over and I'm, I'm ready to get back into the news. Excellent. All right. Well, why don't you tell us what's going on? Well, Robbie, President Biden defended his controversial decision to send cluster munitions to Ukraine in an interview with CNN's Fareed Zakaria this weekend. Let's take a look. It was a very difficult decision on my part. Uh, and by the way, I discussed this with our allies, discussed this with our friends up on the hill. And uh, we're in a situation where Ukraine continues to be brutally attacked across the board by munitions, by these cluster munitions that are, have dud rates that are very, very low, I mean, very high, that are dangerous to civilians, number one. Number two, uh, the Ukrainians are running out of ammunition. Uh, the ammunition that they, they call them 155 millimeter weapons. This is a this is a war relating to munitions, and uh, the running out of those that ammunition, and we're low on it. Now, cluster munitions are known for their propensity to hurt civilians who disturb or mishandle unexploded mines even years after wars end. Civilians represented 97 percent of all cluster munition casualties in 2001. As reported by the Watchdog Group, a cluster munition monitor, 40 percent of victims are children. Yeah. Well, this is, I mean, this is very alarming. People are raising concerns that seem incredibly legitimate, um, including people like so Jen Psaki, when what she was told, you know, back in 2022, that Russia was using these munitions, says, well, of course, this is a war crime. And this is something that many of our peer nations, the UK, France, and on and on, lots of them have said this is not, this is not compatible with, with um, the way a civilized country conducts war. Uh, we, the U.S., has not agreed to that nor has Ukraine, so this is, we're not violating any promise ostensibly we've made. Still, this sounds like exactly the kind of dangerous, very short-term thinking. Well, they need weapons now, so we give them these weapons that, um, that in my understanding of the, of the technical situation is that there, then there are a lot of little explosive fragments that break off, and not all of those explode. Some of them become embedded in the ground and then can be stumbled upon Later, yeah. days later, weeks later, years later, um, you know, this is this is how you turn a country experiencing a war into a permanent battlefield, into yeah. one that is always unsafe ground, like what we've done in the Middle East. Yeah, so the, the irony is, exactly as you point out, that Russia's use of cluster bombs was uh, evidence to many people who wanted to support unlimited aid to Ukraine and further the proxy war of why we needed to be involved in that particular conflict. It was evidence of how kind of evil Russians were and how uh, pernicious the, the kind of fighting particularly was. Now the tables have turned where many of the uh, leftists that I've seen pushing back against uh, the U.S.'s choice to send Ukraine cluster bombs are being told, well, you didn't care when Russia was doing it. Quite the opposite. You did care when Russia was doing it, and now you don't care that America is choosing to do it. And, and here's the problem. The, the, it's like you're, you're right to describe it as a bunch of smaller bombs inside of a large bomb. So it's very indiscriminate in the way they're launched. You're basically scatter, scatter plotting a bunch of small bombs, and many of them also failed to detonate. And we saw this uh, in, in nine years of bombing Laos. We dropped 270 million cluster bombs on the country. 
every eight minutes, 24 hours a day for not, from nine years from 1964 to 1973. And 50 years later, people are still being blown up by those bombs. And part of the argument that's now being made is that, well, our cluster bombs are different. They're safer. In the tests that we've done, we have many fewer of the bombs that fail to detonate. So it's much less likely that a child is going to stumble upon them in later years and pick them up and find themselves maimed or killed. But one thing to note is that the way we test our cluster bombs is on um, kind of these ideal uh, uh, conditions on flat, hard surfaces out in the you know, mm -hmm. desert uh, of the United States, basically, where they're much more likely to explode when they hit the ground, as opposed to in scenarios like in Laos or in where there's obviously jungle right. and soft ground or in Ukraine, where there's mud and vegetation and things like that. So we're also, I think, in the process of misrepresenting how dangerous these things are to come up with excuses for why it's OK when we do it. Well, and the, that whole right, that that's ridiculous on its face, because what are we saying? Oh, no, don't worry. Those those bombs won't hurt people? What do you mean? They're bombs. That's, of course they will. Either yeah. What they're actually saying is they won't hurt anyone unintentionally right. at some other point. That's laughable. We don't believe that. Right. Um, it's, and so there, you know, Biden is framing this as um, necessary. The mainstream media all getting behind it as important in the short term because we're at this pivotal stage of the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Is anyone persuaded by that? Does anyone think right now is a more pivotal stage in the Russia-Ukraine conflict than at any point before, or will it be any? Like, I don't believe that. This is, it sounds like the exact same thing you would hear about why the surge is necessary in Iraq, yeah. or why, you know, we just need to stay the course for another year in Afghanistan because we're in the pivotal zone now. It's turning around, or we have to stop it from being reversed, or something. No, the reality is this is just a conflict that's going to go on for the foreseeable future until, until all of our will to do anything anything about it is exhausted and there's some kind of diplomacy where Russia probably gets something approaching exactly what it wants or something, maybe so hopefully something short of what it wants, yeah. and Ukraine deals with that and then it ends. And in no amount of, I don't believe, I don't, does anyone really believe that any amount of weapons packages from the U.S. Yeah, is going to is gonna end, is gonna, that's going to be the final word on it? No particularly way. Particularly this kind of a weapon. The argument is what? That what it takes to, to win the war in Ukraine is deploying a weapon a that indiscriminately which, kills your own citizens exactly, in the long run? <laughs> one third of all recorded casualties from this kind of weapon are children. Are children. Right. I mean, and this really, I think, underscores the point that many people have been making about how the cost of this war, I think, is being largely ignored. The prolonged nature of it is accruing costs separate and apart from whatever you think you're, you're, you're giving up in the context of a territorial dispute. Oh, people say, well, we can't end the war. The, well, it'll be bending the knee to Russia. Okay, but just so that you're being very clear-eyed about it, the consequences when you're literally arguing that the war can't be won except for using weapons that disproportionately kill children is that, that that's a cost you're saying that you're willing to pay. Hmm. Well, at Finally, at least, there is a cost. So far, Biden has said that he's not quite willing to pay in terms of Ukraine joining NATO. Here he is, uh, President Biden, making comments during a recent interview about why, for right now, he doesn't think Ukraine should join NATO. Should it get membership in NATO? I don't think it's ready for membership in NATO, but here's the deal. I spent, as you know, a great deal of time trying to hold NATO together because I believe Putin has had an overwhelming objective from the time he launched 185,000 troops in Ukraine. And that was to break NATO. He was confident, in my view, and many of the intelligence community, he was confident he could break NATO. So holding NATO together is really critical. I don't think there is unanimity in NATO about whether or not to bring Ukraine into the NATO family now, at this moment, in the middle of a war. 
Friend of the show, Glenn Greenwald, tweeted out in response to the interview, quote, the top priority of the bipartisan U.S. foreign policy establishment and CIA by far is fueling the proxy war in Ukraine. There's a grand total of one TV host in corporate media vehemently and vocally opposed to that policy. But then he got fired. So now there is none. Glenn obviously talking about uh, Tucker Carlson there. Um, on the, in terms of the Biden clip, I, I mean, it is good to hear him articulate that, well, they can't join NATO right now because we are committed to defend it. You know, we should keep our agreement, and our agreement is to defend the countries in NATO, so that would just put us indirect, instead of rather this proxy, indirect World War, 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 III. World War III. We obviously can't do that, so they can't join NATO. So I appreciate him saying that. I mean, that is like the bare minimum, most it's common sense thing you could possibly think. but. He does think it, so so there's that. What do you make? And we're going to talk more about um, Tucker Carlson in a in a future segment. He did a great interview with Russell Brand that we'll be um, dissecting a little bit. But what do you uh, make of Glenn's comment there? For, so for one, I think there is a longer history of um, anti-war news pundits that has been booted from mainstream news. So I would include people like uh, Phil Donahue and Right, he, he did tweet about Phil, and, uh, Phil Donahue as well. Okay, yeah, so I, yeah, I would yeah. say that it, yeah. I would say it's much more inclusive of Tucker Carlson. I also personally, and this isn't Glenn's point, but I have uh, some concerns with the, the broader gestalt of the kinds of messaging and arguments that Tucker Carlson made on his show. So I'm less willing to say that we needed Tucker Carlson to be an anti-war voice and that that canceled out all the other mm -hmm. messaging, much of which I think was just not very truthful and wasn't genuinely invested in holding our political leadership accountable to doing domestic spending and doing uh, real economic justice here at home, as opposed to using some of these talking points as a as talking points to advance uh, the other parts of his agenda that I don't agree with. That being said, I do think it is very useful to do what Glenn is doing, which is to shame the ostensibly more progressive aspects of the media, parts of the media, for allowing Tucker Carlson, at least superficially, if only superficially and rhetorically, to get to their left on these kinds of issues, on this anti-war issue in particular. And they should be shamed in that way. And I think he's right to continue to bring up the fact that Tucker Carlson was the only one who would even give lip service to having an anti-war sentiment in the context of the corporate media. Yeah, and, and Glenn did, in, in that same tweet thread, bring up the Phil Donahue example, which is a, a great example if people aren't familiar. I was a big fan of Phil Donahue from his, his like, daytime talk show thing he had. He, so he had on a lot of—what um, I liked about him is he clearly would learn something about the ideologies of the people he was interviewing. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he was always very informed, the conversations he was having. He had great conversations with people um, like that I like from my own ideological bent that I learned a lot more about mm -hmm. and saw challenged in a very productive way, like Ayn Rand and Milton Friedman. Mm -hmm. um, and then he, w but he was clearly a very anti-war voice, and he was on MSNBC at the time of the Iraq War, um, ramping up. And even though he was, um, you know, he was like I think better rated than anyone else they had at the time, yeah. they canceled him because they were absolutely because they were too afraid of having like an anti-war voice at the time where the whole country yes. was about to get excited for the Iraq War, like it was the Super Bowl. Yeah, or and we'll see. We'll talk about it in the upcoming segment, but. You know, it's, it's debatable whether or not being an anti-war voice is why Tucker Carlson was let go, even if you acknowledge that sure. we are worse off for not having more anti-war voices on TV. Sure. Well, we'll talk about that more in a second. More Rising right after this.
former Fox News host Tucker Carlson went on Russell Brand's show, where he broke down how his questions over the January 6th Capitol riots led to his firing from the network, according to him. Here's what he told Russell. Let's watch. They immediately recoiled when you asked any questions about January 6th. And that was a tip off to me. I mean, I had no thought in my head as I watched this happen on television and in the subsequent weeks that U.S. law enforcement or military agencies had anything to do with it. That never crossed my mind. I never thought there was it was a false flag or anything like that. I'm not a conspiracist by temperament. I never thought that. Um, and then I interviewed the chief of the Capitol Police, Stephen Sund, in an interview that was never aired on Fox. By the way, I was fired before it could air. Um, I, I'm going to interview him again. But Stephen Sund was the totally non-political, worked for Nancy Pelosi. I mean, this was not some right-wing activist. He was the chief of the Capitol Police on January 6th. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That crowd was filled with federal agents. What? Yes. Well, he would know, of course, because he was in charge of security at the site. Carlson, who continued his show on Twitter, also opened up about finding a new home on the social media site where he's been able to broadcast freely. I've made zero money uh, since I left, um, and that's fine. But at some point, I'd like to, but I'm not working for Elon Musk. He hasn't offered to hire me, and if he did, I wouldn't accept. Um, but what he's done is offered me the what he's offered every other user of Twitter, which is a, you know, a chance to broadcast your views without a gatekeeper there. Um, but I do think, you know, I think the technology at Twitter is my expectation uh, is evolving. And I think, you know, the subscription model, you know, might work or it might not, you know, mm. I, I don't know, but I think it might. And, um, and I plan to, I plan to stay there, but what social media offer in the short term, at least for me, uh, is an audience, but also a reason, this is personal, but a reason to write. So it's it's worth noting that he describes having this conversation with the chief of Capitol Police. The U.S. Capitol Police chief, Tom Manger, um, slammed Tucker Carlson, uh, his reporting on the January 6th issue, saying it was, quote, offensive and offered offensive and misleading conclusions about the siege. Um, and, you know, other others in Republican leadership, including Mitch McConnell, also disagreed with how Tucker Carlson was reporting on that particular issue, just to, just to make it clear yeah. that there was some difference of opinion even within the conservative media and political right. ecosystem on that particular Although, issue. I, I fully believe there was a crowd of, you know, thousands and thousands of people there, right-wing activists, conservative activists, um, you know, 95 percent of which didn't do anything but pre but practice their First Amendment uh, protected activity. Yeah. Um, a small number of whom, you know, went into the Capitol, smashed windows, trespassed, roughed up cops. They're being prosecuted as they should. All well and good. Um, I am sure I, it doesn't strike me as ridiculous at all that there were um, assets of law enforcement and law enforcement agents among those people, as there are in every protest movement. We, f we find that there are assets of law enforcement. The, the whole Gretchen Whitmer, uh, the Michigan governor kidnapping, they're all assets being paid by law enforcement. Like, it's, I'm sure that these people, like, these people are, some of them are law enforcement loving people anyway. Some of them are cops of various I, I mean, local, I mean, these are right wing people. They're, they're, they're the law thing. enforcement by, they're militia people. They, they, they're in and out of law enforcement. It's th those kind of people. Now, does that mean 
this was organized by, you know, by national security people or something to create some kind of false flag. No, I mean, to the extent it was organized, it was organized by Donald Trump. By Donald Trump, that's exactly <laughs> so what I'm I don't say. I, I, and also, again, I, I, I was there, I covered it, yeah. I saw what happened. It very much looked to me like a spontaneous riot that from a very overhyped crowd. You know, we've, if you've covered, pro I'm sure you've covered protests, you've been at things where a couple people make it get out of hand sure. and then it just kind of like, they lose control of it. That's what it looked like to me. It didn't look organized. Like the decision to go in did not actually look like a decision. Like it was like someone said, go, go, go. Now we go. It seemed like it just got out of control. Yeah, well, what's so ironic about it is that immediately in the aftermath of, of January 6th, a lot of liberal and left commentators made a similar kind of claim, but based in the idea that there's a natural sympathy for conservative movements among the police force. And there were these clips of what appeared to be police officers opening gates and letting people in and having these kind of friendly interactions with the crowd that many who are not sympathetic to conservative ideology saw as evidence that they basically, if not promoted this, allowed it to happen right. in a way they would not have had it been a left-leaning organization right. like Black Lives Matter. And that's obviously very subjective. So, but the point that, you know, the, the police, you know, the, the chief of the police, Tom Manger, was making was that he, he said it was irresponsible to say that the Capitol Police were letting people in and doing those sorts of things, which, from a professional perspective, he's obviously going to say that, right? He has right. to stand I mean, up for the his, his underlings yeah. and say that they weren't doing that. Also, there's, I'm sure, liability issues and all these kind of professional implications to that. But I don't think it's scandalous for anybody, including a reporter sure. like Tucker Carlson, to be looking into the nuances of what happened that day. I think the more strong pushback that he got was what people perceived to be cherry-picking aspects of the footage to absolve the group as a whole of responsibility for any violence that day, calling the group that, you know, pushed their way in and broke windows and, and did actual violence and destruction in the Capitol, tour, tour guide, or sightseers, some, use some phrase like that, that really felt like it was minimizing the moment as a whole, and also not focusing in on your really excellent point, which is that if, any, if anybody or, orchestrated sure. this or pushed people to feel like they were entitled to enter the Capitol, it was Donald Trump. Yeah, so I want to, you know, I want to push back in two directions because I, so I agree. I don't think, as some on the right have tried to do, have tried to paint this as, oh, it was just, it was all fine, and then there was a plot to embarrass Trump and and make people go in, and everyone who led that was actually secretly working for the deep state or something. That is not accurate. I, I pushing back on that, but. But many of the mainstream media have done the opposite and mm -hmm. tried to say that, no, it was this very organized effort by right-wing actors. Mm -hmm. to, I mean, the, there's been conspiracy charges against, what, the uh, the Proud Boy type people, mm -hmm. um, the, the, uh, you know, using this elaborate scheme, suggesting, like, a plot to overthrow the republic by very, by highly skilled tactics and but that there was training and rehearsals and they planned for this and they organized on social ties. media and yeah. you know and parlors at fault too and social and Zuckerberg yeah. and everybody because they didn't grapple with that like it was all you know, the coup was happening yeah. and that idea which I think is being spoon-fed to mainstream audiences for for other for mainstream news publications is also very wrong it's yeah, it's, was, it's in, it yeah. was just most people they were there for the wrong reason Trump shouldn't have said the things he said he he, he hyped up the crowd. Some of them rioted. They trespassed. It's bad. They need to go to jail. Like, that's I mean, that's not satisfying to either of these two extremes, but that's what happened. I mean, look, 
given what the Democrats have done politically with 1-6, the mm -hmm. increased funding to, to Capitol Police, the framing of it as an insurrection and that they need to vote for Democrats, you need to vote for Democrats to save democracy, that doesn't hold, that framing doesn't exist unless you are able to turn a moment of civil disobedience or a riot into a democracy-threatening political act that was actually going to overturn the results of an election. So there's an obvious political need for Democrats to frame this in a certain way, rightly or wrongly. And similarly, I think conservatives are sensitive to that and trying to reframe it in a way that makes it less than that. So the truth is going to be someplace in between. And I don't think it's useful. I don't think it's, it's convenient mm -hmm. to liberals in this moment that there have been so many instances of FBI and CIA interference in domestic movements. The Gretchen Absolutely. Whitmer case assassinating any number of civil rights leaders, rounding up the African Black Socialist members uh, last summer, the uh, terrorism, domestic terrorism charges that have been um, uh, applied to the Cop City protesters. There really is a sincere overreach that's happening from the uh, these federal agencies. And so if you don't want to give conservatives the opportunity to claim that everything is a false flag, then maybe Stop do interfering in movements yeah. in the way that you have do been some doing. Do acknowledgement. Yeah. Um, it, but it's just, you know, they've been sorted into the the people who love the FBI and the and the State Department and national security officials are now like mainstream liberal Democrats. Yeah. It's a very interesting sorting. We should comment before we move on on Tucker's, uh, what Tucker had to say about uh, the Elon Twitter situation. Mm -hmm. So confirming there that he's not, he doesn't have some kind of deal where he's being paid you know, paid for by Elon, um, thinks that, you know, hopes the subscription model works out, says maybe it won't, seem pretty like, you know, I'm enjoying being on social media and it's a good place to post. And yeah, you, you thought that, that's fine. You thought that, that sounded like he was actually enjoying not getting paid for uh, his work? Well, I think he, <laughs> like he said, wants to get paid eventually. Yeah, look, who... I, I, think don't he, know. I think he appreciates not being told. It sounds like, even based on his comments on trying to interview the guy about January 6th, yeah. that maybe he was getting more frustration and pushback and getting told what to yeah. do at Fox. And, and now he's just. He's, he's happy to have his freedom. I believe yeah. that. It is worth noting, though, that he cannot be paid as a condition of getting his Fox. There's this legal dispute that he's in mm -hmm. where there's millions of dollars on the line. And I suspect that his lawyers have advised him also not to admit to being compensated in any way. That's not to say that he is being compensated, but there's very good legal reasons why he wouldn't necessarily want to telegraph any long-term fee arrangement that he might have made to that actually make him whole for all of the work that he's putting in on this, you know, very popular Twitter show. Well, we will continue talking about this in just a minute. More rising after this. Continuing to discuss Tucker Carlson and Russell Brand's recent conversation on Brand's show, where Carlson expressed regret on ever weighing in on politics at all, acknowledging the wrong calls he made about the last election, but also praising former President Donald Trump for upending and giving the GOP a facelift, particularly for his stance on foreign policy. Let's watch. You know, I'm struck by his foreign policy views. You know, Trump is the only person um, with stature in the Republican Party, really, who's saying, wait a second, you know, why are we supporting an endless war in Ukraine? And that, you know, leaving aside whether Trump's going to get the nomination or get elected president or would be a good president, you know, I can't even assess that. All I can say at this point is I'm so grateful that he has that position. He's right. And everyone in Washington's wrong. Everyone. 
You can't argue with that. <laughs> I, but it's, in, it's interesting because often that argument is made in a broader way that says it's the Republican Party that has the only anti-war voices in it. And Tucker's actually making an even narrower argument that he's the Strong. only person with any stature within the Republican Party who's making that argument. And that perhaps if Trump weren't there saying the things that he's saying, this broader right-leaning anti-war movement might not really exist in well, a substantive way. Trump had never caught fire and become the nominee and then become president, I think there is a strong argument to be made that the Republican Party would not have embraced or, or permitted the kind of uh, America first foreign policy that has taken hold. Um, that would even even if the base was agitating for it, the party would not have recognized it, but Trump forced them to do so. Yeah. I think that's absolutely true. The question now is, was this realignment of the GOP's foreign policy views that, that Trump is responsible for? Is it so complete that without Trump, it still it still holds? And that's very much a question. I think it's conceivable that it does, but clearly Trump is the most vocal proponent of it still. I mean, if you get it, Nikki Haley is, again, indistinguishable from George Bush's policy views in 2006. They're the same. Now, she's polling at, what, like less than one, half a one percent, percent or something? Yeah. So that, you know, that shows you. Um, Ron DeSantis, who's the only actual rival to Donald Trump right now who matters, is trying to sound like Donald Trump on foreign policy in Ukraine a lot of the time. Not, now, it's not perfect. It sounds like a performance to a lot of people. And I think some people wonder if, in his heart, he's more in the older neocon mold. That's the question. Yeah, I mean, the, the most notable foreign policy moment for Ron DeSantis in the context of his primary run so far was the gaffe about it being a territorial, saying that Ukraine was a territorial dispute, which to one side feels like minimizing a, an illegal invasion, and to the other side feels like not a strong enough statement condemning the ongoing proxy war. That trying to have it in both camps is exactly why people are skeptical of him actually sharing uh, Donald Trump's foreign policy commitments. And so, you know, if you think, I, I wonder what you say to this, if you think that even absent Trump, the, the Republican Party would continue along this kind of American first anti-war uh, line, who do you think is going to be holding that line? Mm -hmm. What members of the Republican Party do you think have demonstrated a desire, a capacity, an investment in any kind of long-term or substantive way of holding this line outside of wanting to curry favor with Donald Trump? Well, I mean, there are several members of the House who feel that way. Like, um, for example? Thomas Massey, uh, Matt Gates, uh, uh, Boebert, um, those that but, Because here's the people. thing. I was thinking of Marjorie Taylor Greene, for instance. Yeah. But my concern is, and I hate to just keep bringing this up ad nauseum, but it was one of the few interviews where she was asked about this. When we talked to her and we asked her about her st uh, stance on Ukraine and uh, the broader argument about ending the proxy war and military spending and American first and this, this framing that is, Americans are struggling so much at home, why are we spending so much abroad? Mm -hmm. And we were talking to her about this in the context of the debt ceiling negotiations, where some conservatives were saying, we need to stop spending all of this money on Ukraine. 
at the same time that they were advocating for cuts to domestic spending, which were going to disproportionately hurt poor and working class Americans, I asked her, is cutting the military budget really on the table if you, and instead of doing what you're advocating for, which is cutting this domestic spending that's going to hurt poor people? And she said, absolutely not. I support our troops. I support the military budget. I don't actually want to make those cuts. Yeah, I, I didn't list her for that reason. So, but this is the thing. I think because so many of those individuals. I mean, Rand Paul and J.D. Vance in the Senate, too. Sure. But so many of those individuals that we think of being kind of in this Trump camp, Freedom Caucus mm -hmm. camp, anti-war camp, have never specifically been asked whether they are willing to cut the military budget. They've been singularly focused on being anti-war in Ukraine, and those are not the same things. You can't be only selectively opposed to U.S. imperialism or selectively imposed, mm -hmm. uh, opposed to the idea that we're spending all of this money. We have 800 military bases around the world, but you don't hear mm -hmm. a peep about any other part of the world from this cohort. Sure. And that is why so many on the left who are encouraged by there being a, a larger interest sure. in uh, anti-imperialism on the right are very skeptical of the real bona fides. Rand Paul so has, has called for closing those military bases. Rand Paul's um, a libertarian. Right. But they're not, I mean, there's a big well, difference a between the Party, but. these more libertarian I mean, I style wish Republicans. Were, obviously, I wish there were more of them. I, I, I would also just say that you know, historically, on a long enough historical trajectory, obviously the parties have changed, you know, what they think multiple times. You know, if you go back 100 years, they look, the Republican Party looks more yeah. like the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party looks more like the Republican Party. But the neoconservative hold over the Republican Party is not like a, like, decades and decades and decades long thing. It's something that, like, crept up on the party throughout the 80s and 90s and then vis-a-vis -vis the presidency of, of George W. Bush only after 9-11. George W. Bush did not run as a neoconservative. He, in some ways, sounded less neoconservative than Al Gore. Mm. Then 9-11 happened, and every instinct he had said that we shouldn't police the world and we should leave other countries alone went out the door. Or his, again, his staff overwhelmed or whatever happened. And then, yes, the neoconservative agenda ruled the day for the, for the aughts. But historically, the Republican Party has been, has had a lot of skepticism, uh, in, you know, Treaty of Versailles skepticism, World War II skepticism, um, Vietnam, you know, Korea, uh, all the, those were all wars launched by, in, I mean, continued in some cases by Republicans, but in many cases escalated by Democrats and opposed by Republicans and, all, and leftists. And yeah. I'm saying the history of the Republican Party is, is not, is, is, if you go beyond just like our lifetimes, yeah. it's not been this we should just be at war all the time. We support that sure. kind of thing. But, but so, why? So we, how do we get back to that? So I would argue that what we should be keeping our eyes on and what's much more clarifying than, you know, how many conservatives are this way and how many Republic, uh, Democrats are this way is looking at some of the reasons why we might have taken a neocon turn. And I think your point about Bush is very instructive. Is it really a Bush changing his mind 9-11 question? Or is it a Dick Cheney who's always been a neocon and has been a neocon right. since the Nixon years right. kind of a question? And what is the influence of defense contractor spending in, in Congress, in politics? How, what is that, how, how is that influence manifesting on the foreign policy front? During the Bush years, there was so much liberal criticism of the relationship between Dick Cheney and Halle Burton in the self self-serving, self-paying um, military-industrial complex that we were seeing very obviously, um, very uh, in, in, a, in a indiscreet way. And that has gone away, even as Joe Biden has continued to 
appoint former Raytheon executive as uh, Secretary of Defense, mm -hmm. et cetera. We, we saw in the middle of a kind of inflation crisis, Joe Biden taking time out of his schedule to go down to a military plant in, what was it, Alabama or Arkansas, somewhere in the Southeast, in a way that really seemed to reflect his priorities here. Now, this the cluster bomb conversation we're having is also a conversation about how we're not just make, we're not making enough weapons. If we're so desperate to send cluster bombs, it's because we're having deficits in our in our stockpiles, and we got, and we need to start making more weapons. And is all of this connected? And should we be looking more and holding our politicians more accountable to getting the influence of money out of politics more broadly, but specifically when it comes to the defense industry? Mm. Yeah, it's. Uh, if that industry is warping our priorities, I mean, I, you know, we argue about how much it is due to that. I certainly think the influence of of defense contractors um, makes a difference to, uh, to you know to individual members who that you know there those are factories in their districts, those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, and that there's also a a. Uh, but I think there's also some kind of intellectual thing going on, or the the, the deep state, the the actual um, officials who comprise this national security apparatus exerting um, influence, not just to steer money to the. I, I think there's a lot of that, but I I think it's also their ideology that this is like the best thing to do. I don't know. I I tend to think that ideology has a basis. It's not always rational. Um, but people tend to have internal scripts for why they believe things. I think there, were, there was a time when people genuinely wanted to support the troops, that there was this idea that to be patriotic and to love your country, you had to support the troops, and that meant being pro-war. And over time, as veterans came back from these forever wars that were unpopular and losing, and they were saying, well, supporting us means getting us health care and housing when we come back and not forcing us to stay in Afghanistan doing God knows what for 20 years, right. then that started to change. And now we're in a world where I think that that opened up a space for Donald Trump to say, you can be pro-American without being pro-war. And I think that's a powerful and really beneficial, constructive step in the right direction. But that can be so easily co-opted the same way that supporting our troops was co-opted as, as a kind of patriotism, ignoring the actual substantive interests mm -hmm. of the actual service members. Yeah. Again, it's interesting from the standpoint of who's going to be the next Republican standard bearer, because the foreign policy is not, I think, the most salient issue for a lot of um, just for our national conversation. I mean, we talk about it a lot because we think it's important. Um, but I, I don't, it's not, you know what I mean? It's not the top of mind issue for a lot of people the way it was in the aughts. I don't think so. I, I, I'm watching the excitement behind RFK Jr. among mm -hmm. the left, among liberals, among independents, among a lot of people. And I am uh, analyzing why this, there's something that feels like it's different happening there versus Mary Williamson or, or even Cornel West, who has a very strong anti-war message, I, w I would just say. But it, I think it has to do with being so openly adversarial on that particular issue, calling out Joe Biden on the cluster bomb issue, calling out Joe Biden on his handling of Ukraine. I don't know why. I can't entirely explain it. But it does seem to be. In fact, I just did an episode uh, on my podcast today uh, arguing with a prominent leftist who or debating a prominent leftist who founded Jacobin Mag magazine about why it is that the left seems more invested in what a politician says about the war in Ukraine, the Medicare for all, which was the entire animating principle of the Bernie movements for the last six or seven years. Well, I, that's what uh, actually Tucker said that in, the, in that clip. You know, Trump is right about this and all of Washington is, is wrong. That perception is not just foreign policy. A lot of people, the people I think who support RFK, feel that way, uh, that, that Washington was wrong about foreign policy, 
and COVID, COVID and spending priorities domestic versus everywhere else and a whole bunch of probably whether aliens are being hidden. Like, <laughs> no, a whole bunch of things. People are hungry for the truth. Yeah. They think they've been lied to because they have a lot of credible examples of the expert class getting it wrong, either because they were just sincerely wrong, oops, or because of, you know, pernicious, manipulate society kind of designs. And uh, and, and the most successful people, you know, to the extent RFK Jr. is so successful right now, it's he's calling out all of those things. Yeah, he sure. Is, he is, it, that's part of his ideology, is that they all got so much wrong. And he thinks it, uh, like you, uh, because there's a lot of influencing going on, a lot of buying influence. Yeah, corruption. Yeah. Corruption is the, I would, I think that's right. Yeah. And that manifests in different ways, but corruption is the animating force behind RFK Jr. I think it was also an animating, a galvanizing force behind Trump's first campaign, and it was a galvanizing focus issue for Bernie Sanders' first campaign as well. Maybe that's really what it is. Mm. All right, more rising right after this. Last week, the Biden administration announced it would tap former President Trump appointee Elliot Abrams to join the U.S. Advisory Commission on Public Diplomacy. He was one of eight Republicans handpicked to serve on the bipartisan commission. Some see the decision as controversial because Elliot was famously convicted for lying to Congress over the Iran-Contra affair. Moreover, he is associated with facilitating and covering up human rights violations in Latin America when he worked for the Reagan administration. Here to discuss the details of Biden's latest appointment is Bronco Markatich, a staff writer for Jacobin and the author of Yesterday's Man, The Case Against Joe Biden. Thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. So what should our viewers know about this figure, Elliot Abrams? I mean, I don't like to throw the word evil around, but I mean, he, Elliot Abrams really is one of the most just unambiguously vile, you know, you might say evil people uh, that, that has worked in Washington. I mean, this is a guy who his entire uh, uh, job when he was in the Reagan administration was to cover up uh, human rights abuses by the uh, the Contras and, 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 and military forces of these uh, right-wing governments in Central America that the Reagan administration was uh, supporting, uh, and and to make sure that, that uh, military aid was going to them uh, in order to, to, you know, not only to, to roll back uh, uh, left-wing influence in the region, but in the process, you know, they, they were carrying out pretty sickening human rights uh, uh, violations that... People can go look them up if they want to see the details. It's not really worth going into here. I mean, aside from that, and aside from uh, subsequently lying to Congress about it, uh, he's also been a guy who's uh, been involved in, in coup attempts in other countries, Venezuela famously in 2002, kind of gave the nod to, to that attempt against Hugo Chavez. Again, was involved years later uh, under the Trump administration to try and foment regime change against uh, Maduro this time, because Maduro, Chavez's successor, um, he was involved reportedly in an attempt uh, within the Bush administration to foment a civil war in the Palestinian territories um, after the 2006 elections did not go the way that the Bush administration went and, and, and put Hamas in power uh, in Gaza. Um, and, you know, he's a guy who has very vocally supported uh, uh, regime change efforts that didn't happen, but, you know, could still be on the cards. I mean, he was saying that basically uh, the U.S. should, if, if, you know, some of the kind of uh, uh, more covert stuff didn't work, uh, should just basically invade Nicaragua or do a blockade to try and uh, topple its government. He was saying uh, uh, the same thing about Iran as well, uh, that, that, you know, if Iran um, uh, 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 
gets close to developing a nuclear weapon, the US should just uh, bomb it. So, you know, I mean, really every single part of his record, which I've only given you a tiny sliver of here, uh, really makes a, a complete mockery of all the rhetoric that the Biden administration has been using on the world stage uh, uh, of the past you know, year, if not, if not the entire term. Yeah, I mean, I've seen uh, kind of a left-wing pushback against some of Joe Biden's appointments and other kind of political choices over the last few years. And usually there are, there's a chorus of defenders, people who are close to the administration, insiders, establishment actors, who defend Joe Biden's choices. Uh, this time, there seems to be a more uh, unanimous pushback from folks who even, you know, people who are very fond of Joe Biden and the job that he's been doing as president are, are kind of scratching their heads and asking why he's made this particular choice. And I want to ask you what you make of this decision. Do you think Joe Biden underestimated the level of pushback, uh, objection he would get up over around this appointment? Or do you think that this reflects um, an ideological commitment from Joe Biden that people should be really concerned about? I mean, number one, uh, my initial reaction still is, I don't really know what the calculus here, the political calculus is, uh, there's no real gain uh, uh, to this. You know, it's a, it's a highly uh, publicity uh, uh, triggering uh, uh, appointment because Elliot Abrams is, is so on and has such a terrible record and was also part of the Trump administration, but he's also being put in a role that, you know, at least from what's been said, it, it's not a particularly, uh, I mean, anyone could have taken this role. They're, they're, dozens, if not hundreds of people in Washington that that would be happy to kind of basically uh, shape U.S. propaganda efforts overseas uh, uh, for the sake of, of undermining governments that are unfriendly to the United States, which is what the, the U.S. Uh, Public Commission uh, on, on, on Public Diplomacy is. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's about, you know, it's about propaganda and kind of public relations messaging um, uh, for U.S. interests on the world stage. So I'm not really sure what they gain from it, aside from this really terrible news cycle. But, I mean, to what you were saying right there, I mean, I think it does point to a very uncomfortable fact about the Biden administration. I mean, we were told that this was going to be a break from Trump, that it was going to kind of confirm that the Trump administration was an aberration, that it had nothing to do with American political tradition, and that, you know, the Democrats were going to take um, uh, U.S. foreign policy and government into a more kind of competent human rights and democracy-focused uh, direction. And, I mean, the, the truth is that there's actually a, a fairly um, worrying influence of, of neoconservatives in the Biden administration. And I don't just mean people who are kind of liberal interventionists, such as uh, Jake Sullivan and Tony Blinken, but, but outright neocons, people like, uh, like Victoria Nuland, who basically is, um, is is running Ukraine policy uh, under Biden, as she she was to a lesser extent under Obama. Um, and I think the the lack of attention to the neocon influence uh, uh, in the Biden administration um, is kind of one of these is underreported stories or these stories that don't really get that much attention. Um, even though you know we were all appalled at the foreign policy of uh, of Trump and then uh, George Bush before him. Does this show that um, liberals, Democrats, the mainstream, they are keen to rehabilitate anyone 
as long as that person had kind of like a personal dislike of Donald Trump. I, you know, I'm seeing that he was quoted as saying that he thought, even though he served, Elliot Abrams, even though he served under Trump, he thought Trump was not fit to be president and continued to think that and especially thought that after January 6th, that kind of thing, where someone's, you know, substantive foreign policy positions and agenda can be totally papered over if, you know, they find Trump as icky as establishment figures in Democratic circles do. I mean, that's definitely a phenomenon that's that's been a thing uh, since Trump got elected. I, I don't really see it so much here. Um, I mean, actually, to be honest, I haven't seen any uh, uh, administration defense or explanation of this so far. I mean, it's been reported and it's made a lot of news and a lot of people have been very angry about it. But I haven't seen anyone, maybe, maybe I just haven't seen it, but I, I haven't seen anyone actually saying, well, this is why Elliot Abrams deserves to be in here. And I think... A uh, big part of the reason for that is because his appointment is really indefensible, not just on, on moral grounds, but even just on, on, on political grounds. Um, I, I would love to see, you know, if there was a, a, a White House pool reporter or, you know, uh, one of the reporters that, that, that uh, asked questions of the State Department uh, on a regular basis, I would love if they were able to put the question of what exactly is going on with this decision and why on earth would they pick someone with a, a record this horrendous um, uh, to be anywhere near U.S. foreign policy, even if this is just running propaganda operations overseas, someone like this should not be, you know, as I put it in the, in the piece, should not even be washing dishes in the White House. Yeah, I mean, it does speak to a kind of impunity. I, I said earlier that there have been, there's been left pushback to any number of Biden uh, appointments in the past, um, uh, whether it's just the near tandem uh, back and forth that was a, a, a lot about her substantive politics, but also her interpersonal politics and her attitude toward the left, um, whether it's uh, appointing a former Raytheon executive as secretary of defense. I mean, there have been these, you know, what are you doing moments from the broader liberal Democratic Party and left community about what Joe Biden does. But it does seem like the vote blue no matter who ethos quickly makes it so that no substantive criticism should stick. So just as we wrap here, I want to ask you, as someone who's you know expert on these matters, I wonder if you've reflected on the other candidates in the primary fields of both parties uh, and made any kind of decisions, uh, analysis, about which of them seem to offer a real departure from the neocon core of both establishment parties. I mean, uh, the Democratic field is pretty depressing. Um, I mean, there's many criticisms one can and, and, and I certainly have made of the Biden administration foreign policy. Uh, you know, RFK says a lot of the good things uh, that, that, that sound kind of reasonable in foreign policy. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, that comes with a poison pill of all these other kind of positions they takes, not just on vaccines, but, you know, I, I'm not really particularly inspired by his very tepid kind of support for Medicare for all that, that you guys kind of extracted from him um, and, and a whole host of other domestic policy issues. Marion Williamson, um, you know, has impressed me on domestic policy, but um, uh, I think uh, in terms of, of foreign policy, I, I there's not that much daylight between what Biden is doing and, and, and what she's saying, at least from what I've seen so far. I wish there was more of an emphasis on, you know, sure, you can support military aid to, to Ukraine, but the, the real emphasis that has to be put is on, on, on peace efforts. So, so far, no one really um, is, is impressing me too much. But I think, you know, that, that uh, points to the need to uh, not just kind of wait for a candidate or a politician to, to say and do the things that, that, that we hope that they would, but to actually exert some sort of pressure, whether it's on these uh, primary challenges or 
on on the Biden administration itself to to take a you know a, a more reasonable uh, you know more humane uh, approach to foreign policy. Hmm. Bronco Marchatich, thank you so much for joining us. Cheers. Thanks. A new report in Axios alleges that President Biden is known to maintain composure in public, even opting to whisper when making a point. But behind closed doors, the 80-year-old commander-in-chief has a short temper. Imagine that. Mm, the report further makes the claim that Biden aides avoid meeting Biden alone in order not to face his fury. According to aides with whom Axios spoke, his outbursts have included, quote, Gee, damn it, how the expletive, don't you know this? Don't BS me and get the expletive out of here. The story also maintained that those close to the president acknowledged he can be tough, but aides like working for him because he is compassionate and makes them feel like family. Rising reached out to the White House for comment, but has not heard back. Right, so the, the article goes into some detail about these kind of statements, don't effing BS me. I mean, obviously, we're editing these mm -hmm. for the sake of uh, 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 civility here and kids that might be in the room. And I do think this is interesting because it paints such a contrast with his public image of being the nice uncle with the aviators and the and the ice cream. But why should it? He lashes out at public all the time. That's that's He's exactly. made angry comments to people kind of out of nowhere. Uh, because because he's old and sometimes old people get upset. But he's been doing he has been doing this for a long time. I'm reluctant to even chalk it up to age. I think it's a, a disposition issue. So yes, my 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 pushback against this reporting is only framing it as a novel thing that we didn't already know from his behavior on yeah. the How campaign trail. How sympathetic of this man do you have to be to think well, he never gets angry in public? We've seen it. We have a clip of it. Let's play the clip. Around a long time, and I know more than most people know, and I can get things done. That's why I'm running. And you want to check my shape on? Let's do push-ups together, man. Let's do. Let's run. Let's do whatever you want to do. No one has said my son has done anything wrong, and I did not on any occasion. And no one has ever said it. Not I didn't once. say you were doing anything wrong. I you said, said I set up my son to work in an oil company. Isn't that what you said? I Get your word straight, Jack. That's what I. You don't hear that in MSNBC. You did not hear that. But you heard. Look, okay, I'm not going to get an argument with you, man. Well, yeah, you do. But, uh, but look, Fat, look, here's the deal. Here's the deal. There wasn't just that moment. There was a moment where he was on a kind of a factory floor uh, with a bunch of workers in hard hats getting into an argument during the campaign, and he told a worker, you're full of S-H-I-T. Um, there was a moment where he ends up kind of putting his hands on someone who disagreed with him backstage at an event during the primary. I mean, these these episodes happen constantly, just in the context of his 2020 primary campaign, and nobody touched it. The media was really not interested in any of these stories. And they emphasize he's, that he's soft-spoken and stutters and kindly, yeah. old grandfatherly. No, Grandfathers I'm, can be mean. Many, many, many <laughs> are. Now, I'm not inclined to say that this is the kind of thing that is disqualifying um, to be no, president. You're allowed to get angry. But it is worth noting that there was an entire media cycle 
arguing that Marion Williamson had been unkind to staff and that that was, in fact, disqualifying to her ambitions to be president of the United States of America. And her former campaign manager pointed it out uh, this morning, I believe, in a tweet. Um, uh, he tweeted out, um, uh, wait, weren't there 500 articles about Marianne Williamson saying that this dis disqualified her? I don't remember her. the Marianne mistreats her staff news cycle. It, I remember the it Andy, Amy Klobuchar uh, news cycle. Yeah, for sure that happened as well. Yeah. Yeah, I don't care about any of those things, really. They seem like letting um, anonymous staff members gripe about work to you know, media publications that love drama is just something that should be ignored, in my view. Yeah, so I, look, if there were an instance of Wait, are we going to do a feminism? Are we going to claim that it's, that, that women get shamed for this, but uh, it's covered up when it's Biden? I, I, I do think- We're doing a feminism! Well, look, I'm sorry, like, I, I do think that there is a, I don't know what you want to attribute the indifference yeah. to his behavior. If no, you no, if you might, say it's, it's just that he's genuinely likable, that this is something that has nothing to do with um, it's we can't let Trump win, right? But it was a primary. <laughs> it was a Democratic primary. At the beginning of the Democratic primary, Kamala Harris was pulling on top. At some other points in the Democratic primary, Elizabeth Warren was pulling on top. Throughout the entire Democratic primary, Bernie Sanders was pulling at the top. So the idea that it had to be Joe Biden, who again lost the first three contests in 2020. You know, that that is not After a making such a charming impression on Iowan voters. <laughs> right. Now, I will say there have been some others like Michael Bloomberg who have been notoriously awkward and unlikable and stiff uh, in, in public and with um, their prospective constituents, bad at glad-handing. There's been a lot of focus on Ron DeSantis's bad retail politics. He has all these awkward moments. You know, he'll laugh weird, and that'll dominate a news cycle. He took those beach photographs with his wife that I saw a lot of people dunking on on Twitter because of a kind of stiff awkwardness and his persona in the photograph. Um, he, he t there are all these reports, I saw a cycle over the weekend where he, it was reported that he kind of sits quiet in group situations and doesn't engage in discussion unless he's prompted to do so. There was a stiff awkwardness around his um, Twitter spaces launch where he ended up reading a stump speech into the computer without a crowd in a way that seemed to misunderstand the medium and why it could be beneficial to his campaign. So it, it has been. There are other other people who have been criticized for this. Notably, though, this is the first time that Joe Biden is getting an article like this that I can remember, despite being on the public scene for a very, very long time and having many, many public incidents of direct and sometimes physical confrontations with people who disagree with him. Yeah, it's... Uh I mean, I won't say that there's like no negative coverage or something of, of Joe Biden in the in the mainstream. There is, um, but there there is an effort to paint him as a uniquely kind, warm, you know, someone you would get along with, a member of your family kind of impression, which um, which this was very different. It's you know, it's human to get angry. You can get angry at about, about things in a like I don't like you're allowed to be frustrated with you know your staff. If you're a political figure, um, so I don't know that this is the biggest deal ever. It's just, the story. The only story here is them trying to be like, oh yeah, nobody else has noticed this. We've noticed it. It was noticed. Yeah, that is bizarre. It was I, I will say. Well, well, let's drill down on the claims here a little bit. A staffer said that Biden has such a quick temper that some aides try to avoid meeting alone with him. Some take a colleague almost as a shield against a solo blast. I mean, is there a line between you know a tough boss? 
and someone whose temper is so extreme that it is perhaps getting in the way of them being able to be an effective boss. But um, how old are these people who are complaining? We don't. We don't know. Because there are a lot of. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm going to do some generational warfare here. There, there's. You got to talk to people very, in a, in a sensitive way, these days, don't you think? That might be true, but we have no evidence that the people who are complaining here. Well, that's why here... I, I would like to know more about who's making those claims. Yeah, and it is worth noting also that at other moments in time, folks have read into the choice of staffers to start talking to the press as evidence that the administration is losing confidence in that person, right? So when there were a bunch of stories about Kamala Harris and staff departures and things like that, this there were there were it was rumored that there she had lost the support and confidence in the administration. Are we going to try to report replace Kamala Harris? Those those kinds of things. And I do wonder if having Biden staffers come out to talk now reflects some sense that he's not going to be running for a second term, that he is going to be replaced, the Democratic Party does not does not have as much confidence in him as they once did. It'll be interesting to see if this is a start of a flood of articles of this nature or just a one-off. We will see. I predict that he will, in fact, be the nominee. More rising right after this. President Trump took a swipe at rival Ron DeSantis on the campaign trail in an attempt to wrangle voters against his top challenger for the GOP presidential nomination. Here's a clip from his speech in Las Vegas. Let's watch. So I don't, I'm not a big fan of his, and he's highly overrated. He's highly overrated. Remember, he's the one that wanted to cut Social Security. He's the one that wanted to raise the minimum age, and he voted on this. This isn't just... And the one thing you have to remember, when a politician comes out with an initial plan and then they go into a corner because they're getting killed, because he's getting killed, he's like, he's, his thing is going, Ching. well, he also has no personality. That helps, right? As a politician, you have to have personality. You saw where he wants to change his name. It's DeSantis. He wants to call it DeSantis, but you don't do it in the middle of a campaign. But DeSantis or DeSantis, DeSantis may not be a threat to Trump after all. According to a Wall Street Journal report, support for the Florida governor has stagnated. And as of July 5th, 538 polling shows DeSantis' appeal among voters seems to have gone down since January of this year from the upper 30s down to 23 percent a week ago. All right. So it's bad news bears for Ron DeSantis. There was a big political piece that came out about a week ago called We Are Way Behind. A top DeSantis PAC official sounds the alarm. He's been asked about this on uh, the cable news circuit and his uh, affect, as many people have noted, feels weird and giggly and fake and like he's perhaps not really wrestling with what's going on here or he's not helping his cause. And in the clip like that you see from Donald Trump. Like, like ahead, it or not, subjectively, the guy, as the kids say, has riz. Like he has that, that ability to connect with an audience. Even when you hate what he's saying, he's making you laugh. He is a performer first, and in some ways, because of who Trump is, it's really highlighting DeSantis's specific deficits in a way that is really hurting his campaign. Sure, I don't quite know what. Does, look, DeSantis can't 
fix the fact that Trump is a far more charismatic and entertaining figure, and he's never going to beat Trump on those grounds, so we can't even try. What DeSantis has to try to do, like his only this is the lane left to him, is to be someone whose policy views are better liked, not if not by the country, by a, the conservative activists in primaries. Well, let's let's talk about policy, because that was a policy-filled clip from Donald Trump as well. He said that Ron DeSantis was trying to cut Social Security. Ron DeSantis was trying to wage the retirement age. And while Republicans historically have taken the L on those issues and kind of supported them— They've run them away from them because of Trump. Of late, yes. Trump has, has tapped into the reality that even conservatives love those social policies. As I talk about ad nauseum, 60 percent of— Floridians in the 2020 election where they voted for Donald Trump also supported a $15 minimum wage. People are struggling. Working class and, and poor people have seen wage, uh, have been hit by inflation hard and seen their wages not keep up. And they need help. So Ron DeSantis is banking on the idea that his like crusade on wokeness is going to be people's political and priority. Wokeness and COVID. But I think there's a ceiling for that. Well, we're seeing it. We're going to see. Well, right. We have to see if that works. And also, I mean, the fact that it is turning out that everyone and their neighbor and brother are going to enter the Republican primary. It's not going to be, a, you know, it's not going to be a clean fight. And it's smaller numbers. But every person who chips off one percentage point it just steals a little bit of the thunder of the media attention. If it's only Trump, if it's only DeSantis up against Trump. Um, I, I would have given him much better now that there's so many other people. It divides up the media attention. It divides up the spotlight, and it's working against him. Also working against him is these weird—can we put up this flyer I, <laughs> I spotted on social media? This is a flyer that says, thank you, President Trump, for your reaction, for your standing up for LGBTQ rights, <laughs> spotlighting that Trump let a transgender person compete in his— Miss whatever it is pageant, yeah, Miss Universe, um, et cetera. This is getting mailed to Republican voters in Iowa. Um, so, so this is not Trump did not send this. To these no, no, people. no. This, this is, is something piece. probably I don't know for sure. I would guess that DeSantis people <laughs> are sending to remind Iowans that Trump is uh, is uh, is gay friendly. Yeah, they call him a transgender trailblazer. Uh, they say Some you know dirty, they, they dirty pool. <laughs> they have him standing in this uh, rainbow rose garden here, um, and it is true he was and never it's a zealot. Of that, of that just the video from last week. DeSantis put out, the DeSantis war room put out spotlighting how, uh, again, Trump's relatively positive record on, on LGBT issues contrasting with Ronald, uh, with, uh, with Ron DeSantis, uh, Ron DeSantis yeah. not, view, not having Look, those views. Trump is certainly no actual hero on LGBTQ issues, but he is probably closer to, to the average. <laughs> Mail it to Brianna. Uh, this is, I, I saw this flyer and I thought, based Donald Trump, this is a, an endorse, a ringing endorsement of him from someone like my perspective. But the, the, uh, the, the reality is that he is not, a, a, you know, he's not pro, he's not a, a hero for the gay rights movement or anything, but he is probably closer to where the average American is. And Ron DeSantis has aggressively overshot. That video was unhinged. It might appeal to a small fraction of the country, but he is presuming that he can grow his support beyond the 20-odd percent that he has now by just talking increasingly loudly about how he doesn't like trans people. 
People cannot like trans people all they want, but most folks in America don't even know a trans person and are not going to the polls on the basis of how cruel you are to a small and already marginalized community. Now, in this political political piece, um, DeSantis' campaign spokesperson, Brian Griffin, says, Ron DeSantis has been underestimated in every race that he's won, and this time will be no different. And I think what Donald Trump might say to this, because he said it many times before, is that when he was flagging in his a gubernatorial race in Florida, it was only by the grace of Donald Trump and Donald Trump's endorsement that he, you know, spiked in the polls and was able to win. And so the real question is, can DeSantis fly on his own accord, on his, on his own Well, gesture? okay, but in fairness to DeSantis, that was the first time around. In the re-election, DeSantis won decisively, whole state shifted red at a time where, um, you know, where Donald Trump's candidates went, like, were defeated and we didn't, yeah. and this is, didn't take back the Senate. And this Senate is his and, first race for president. So yeah. we're going to see what happens. The, fir the first time he's introducing himself to the American people is not going so well, just like the first time he tried to introduce himself to the people of Florida. And I, I imagine that if he had waited waited his turn, it's not that's not something I gen generally advocate for in political context. I don't think that it's anybody's turn. But there is, you can imagine a world where no. he waited until after Donald oh, Trump no. won, stayed on his good side, and had a very different experience waited running. Waited until... He's a young if, man. If we're waiting till, well, what does he have? Fifty years left. In, Donald Trump is gonna is gonna it could be deceased and in the ground and still be running well, for I'm president saying, for twenty. Like I'm, his his ghost will be seeking. We, we this. do have term limits, so presuming that Donald Trump is successful, and also he's like I an eighty year old man. I but presuming that, that he actually ran and was successful in this uh, in this upcoming I election. I think the idea that any uh, that he should wait or uh, like what are you waiting for? The the, the, for? the winds of fortune change. There could be some new hot young anti-woke republican coming up some way that i mean he can run a, he can run a, even if he he can lose the primary to trump trump can lose the general and he can run again in four years yeah um, this isn't like i said i preface this by saying yeah. i don't agree with people waiting their turn okay. however that doing as poorly as he's doing right now it seems obvious to me that it could be more it would be difficult for him to do worse by maintaining his alliance with Donald Trump, given what Donald Trump has demonstrated he can do for Ron DeSantis in electoral context. Ron DeSantis, we, we predicted this early on, and many people thought that when he had the initial surge in pollings that it was going to change. People thought that the indictments that Donald Trump has been collecting like infinity stones was going to change the scenario, and it's done quite the opposite. It has made people feel very defensive of Donald Trump, that he has been the victim of political persecution. It has reminded people why they liked him in the first place as he defended himself. Well, the indictments have absolutely ways. helped Trump in his quest to secure the Republican nomination because they've put the he's clawed back the the attention spotlight once again yeah. for himself it's not going anywhere else and those other candidates need any other candidate especially DeSantis because he's the only one who even has a shot need the attention need to all oxygen being spent on Trump is wasted air from the standpoint of of a DeSantis yeah. and so it's been a disaster for and also because and, and they're unwilling you know except for like Christie and I guess maybe sort of Pence they've kind of been unwilling to use that the way that in any other political context you would have used it, which is to say, well, yeah, my opponent can't be the can't be the nominee if he's right. going to freaking going to prison. <laughs> so conservatives win on the culture war issues only when they seem less crazy than the libs of TikTok, right? Yes. And when they seem less crazy than the most excessive overreaches of liberalism, For sure. the blue-haired crazy whatever you think. For sure. 
Ron DeSantis making his whole personality about being woke, uh, anti-woke, and putting out insane, unhinged ads that look like they were made by a teenager in his mother's basement between uh, episodes of, you know, sessions of Settlers of Catan, is whoa, not whoa, whoa, making whoa. him look less crazy than the alternative. Settlers and Donald of Catan Trump, is a family game. <laughs> Donald Trump. Especially if you want to be very angry with your family afterwards. <laughs> if you're Donald Trump and you can be parodied as being both pro-LGBTQ and not a like a culture war zealot, like a libs of TikTok, blue, you know, indulgent human being, you're in the sweet spot of where most Americans are, even if it's to the right of where I might be in my personal cultural politics. And he is he is gonna my predict, prediction is that he's gonna win win that game. Mm. All right, more rising right after this. New York progressive Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has endorsed President Joe Biden's 2024 re-election bid. Let's watch. So president's only primary opponents are Marianne Williamson and Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Haven't been any rumors about anyone else even thinking about jumping in. Will you be supporting Joe Biden for re-election? I believe given that field, yes. I think he's done quite well, uh, it, given the limitations that we have. Um, I do think that there are ebbs and flows, uh, as there are in any, uh, in any presidency. You know, I, there are areas that I think were quite strong when he came right out of the gate with the American Rescue Plan. And of course, the Inflation Reduction Act was a massive step in terms of our climate agenda. But, you know, there are also areas that I think could have gone better. We have major structural issues in this country. And it start, I think it starts with the United States Senate. Um, and I think that until we have senators that are willing to stand up and stare the filibuster in the eye and stare a lot of structural issues about the Senate, and the United States Senate will be what holds back this country from an enormous amount of progress. AOC also joined former White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki on her show yesterday, talking about her political future. Let's take a look. But in five years, are you going to be in Congress? I mean, we maybe. You know, I think um, I've always tried to approach my service in a way of what really I think would be best for people. And if it would be best for me to continue my service, um, then I will. If it's best for me to continue my service in a, in a different form, then I hope to do that like as well. Like in the Senate, for example. <laughs> <laughs> so it, if you, I mean, put those two clips together, she certainly does actually sound like she's suggesting that the Senate's the problem. Maybe I should be in the Senate. It does sound like that. Um, for many progressives, this was a very disappointing moment for her. We are, what, 18 months out from the actual election. There's plenty of time and opportunity for her to delay her endorsement, even if you think ultimately she's going to endorse the incumbent. Um, Bernie Sanders endorsed Joe Biden, I believe, the day that he officially announced that he was running. And now here comes AOC, who says specifically, given the field of candidates that exists, I will endorse Joe Biden. 
many people look to that and say, well, you are a candidate that got into office as a DSA-aligned candidate whose central issue was Medicare for All, which Joe Biden virulently opposes and says he would veto even if she were able to reform the Senate in these magical ways um, and ha get them to pass it. Uh, she is someone who claimed to be a supporter of the $15 minimum wage, which Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer very specifically killed. It was a part of the uh, first COVID relief bill at the beginning of Joe Biden's administration. Um, and it was part of that package as a must-pass bill. It's a very popular policy, as I say all the time, even Florida, Florida voters in 2020 supported it, but Chuck Schumer took it out so that it would never have to be a question of whether Republicans were going to vote down on the whole COVID relief package, which allowed America to open back up again and get vaccines distributed um, and get their businesses going again, uh, because it was just, it was, it was taken out, not because of any pressure to do so, but because Chuck, Chuck Schumer, presumably with the approval of Joe Biden, just chose to do so. And there was very little objection apart from, from Bernie Sanders about that. Um, she did speak out somewhat against uh, Biden's choice to bifurcate the uh, social spending aspects of Build Back Better from the infrastructure aspects of Build Back Better in a way that was obviously designed to kill the social right. spending and, again, prevent it from being a must-pass bill. And instead of talking about all of that and saying that my support is contingent on him doing more, maybe on the student debt front, for instance, um, maybe even mentioning the existence of something called medical debt in America, which does not exist in any similarly affluent country because other people don't go into bankruptcy uh, because they have health care bills. Instead of taking this opportunity to speak to all of these legitimate failures in the Biden administration and speak to the audience that got her elected, she seems to be, in the context of these interviews, concerned about the small incremental role that she can play in her own personal career as a senator. And that's disappointing to the left. Same thing with uh, with uh, with Ukraine. I mean, what you know, remember yeah. the the very tepid attempt that was I think it was almost a year ago now, it was probably a full year ago, that um, some progressive members of the House made that letter that they put together yep. um, asking a very mild criticism of the administration's efforts here. That again, that was a full year ago. This is still going on with just as much ferocity. Biden is going to send cluster bombs to. Ukrainian forces, um, with with all you know, we talked about earlier in the show, with all the downside of that. Again, I don't. That, that's not on AOC. Uh, she can have whatever view of it she wants, um, and she and I don't have the same views on a whole lot of policies. But I object to uh, a lot of our to what, how, our Ukrainian strategy and the lack of um, urging of diplomacy and the lack of realism that this needs to be brought to an end. I would think, based on, as you said, she's a, she was a DSA-aligned candidate. I, I know this is something where my views and people on the left can find some common cause. We've found some common cause on this. So it is frustrating, you know, not to pile on, uh, but it's frustrating that she is doing absolutely nothing, nothing whatsoever on the front to raise the salience of that. Yep. And as a counterexample of how she and her caucus could be behaving, you see what the Freedom Caucus is doing right now and how much power they've managed to extract from a narrow majority, the exact same narrow majority that progressives had at the beginning of Joe Biden's administration. Progressives at the time wanted them to withhold their vote for Nancy Pelosi being Speaker of the House in exchange for various concessions. They did not. The Freedom Caucus did. And they got some very meaningful ones. They basically control what bills can come to the House floor right now because of uh, appointments that they got on various committees from uh, uh, Senator Congressman yeah. uh, uh, McCarthy. Um, there was real power at stake. And so much of the Democratic Party's game, because I think a lot of Democratic voters, party voters, are really well-meaning and they want a lot of good things. And there's this broader 
uh, bipartisan populist um, core of America that agrees on common sense gun control and health care reform and $15 minimum wage and all of this kind of stuff. Um, but they believe Democrats uniquely are credulous about their party's ability to do X, Y, and Z. And this fiction about, well, it's not our fault, it's just that the Senate won't go along with it, we know that's a fiction because we saw exactly how Barack Obama uh, uh, behaved with a supermajority. We heard the promises about how, well, if you just elect a Democrat one more time, we're going we're gonna to codify Roe, we're going to pass the, mm -hmm. the Equal Rights Amendment. Obama did not do those things despite having a supermajority. And now they've turned around and it very much looks like they're set to do the exact same thing with student debt reform. Because now Biden's plan B, uh, going, trying again through the Higher Education Act, because there's a notice and comment period, it would take us into his second term. And you can already see them lining up on TV, Ro Khan and other giving interviews saying, well, you got to vote for Joe Biden if you ever want student debt reform. And so it feels like this carrot stick bait and switch dance that is, is enabled by people who were who have progressive bona fides like uh, uh, AOC does, telling the public that this is the most that they can expect. You know, it speaks to how much this phenomenon of the Democratic Party becoming the home for um, conformists, frankly, mm -hmm. for people who listen, listen and trust authority, follow orders, respect rules, respect yeah. process, who are not combative or feisty, Temperamentally, that's what a Democratic representative is, and that's what the constituency or the, you know, the highly educated viewers, readers, et cetera, of mainstream news, where on the Republican side, it's, I mean, it's, it's the real housewives sometimes. It's nasty. It's, <laughs> it's reality TV. Their, their standard bearer is a star well, reality Robbie. TV. But there's actual... But I'm saying but people make fun of that, but it, there's actual political arguments so going yeah, on. For, for sure, there, that exists on the Republican side, but the overwhelming majority of Republican voters, Trump lost because people were over his antics. Trump lost because he couldn't keep it together for an election season and he was saying all this wild stuff in the context of the COVID pandemic. You know, so I, well, maybe there's more conformists I, I, than nonconformists. I, I, I agree that there is certainly more of an appetite among the Freedom Caucus for this kind of uh, mm -hmm. adversarial politics than among this so-called squad. But I don't know that—I think that, generally speaking, elites, middle-class, upper-middle-class people are all looking for stability and bipartisanship and all of these, these buzzwords. It's really just working-class people and poor people of both parties who are driving the, the populist movement for looking for more straightforward candidates who are telling them the truth. And AOC ran for Congress saying she was going to bring the ruckus. She ran for Congress saying, quote, in any other country, Joe Biden and I would not be in the same party. Well, if you feel so strongly that you should not be in the same party as Joe Biden, why on earth, mm -hmm. a year and a half before an election, are you choosing to weigh in with an endorsement instead of saying, well, we deserve to have more candidates if you don't like the candidates that have already thrown their hat in the ring? Why have the Progressive Caucus not been putting their heads together in anticipation of 2024 to run someone who can be the standard bearer for the issues that they said they cared so much about when they got our money and our votes from the progressive flank, people giving their last $727, poor and working class people to support these kinds of campaigns? Yeah, I, I'm saying temperamentally the Democratic Party is shifting into something that doesn't um, just doesn't practice that kind of that kind of shtick. That kind of bring the bring the ruckus. They don't bring the ruckus. It's just a brand. It was yeah. a branding exercise. Yeah, and you see this a lot now. I mean, AOC, ironically, she was a critic of the weaponization of identity politics that was happening at the time. She said it's not enough for you just to vote for people who are black right. or Latino or, or female or whatever, that you have to look at their substantive politics. Where is that discussion now? 
Richie Torres, who holds himself out as a progressive because he's black, Latino, and gay in New York City, is out here making, basically tweeting out APAC talking points about the um, the, the murders, the 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 all, all of that was going on in um, Jenin in, in in Israel and Palestine right now. Um, where is the pushback from the squad about the rhetoric that he's putting out about that? When's the last time they were forcefully having a discussion about um, freeing Julian Assange? Yeah, a AOC again, that's for, that's for on that a Republicans long time ago. and then people who are not Republicans but are outside the Democratic coalition, like uh, RFK Jr. and Marianne Williamson type people. And Cornell West is and running Cornel for West, Green Party. Like, Do you have it's no all the outsiders. For Cornel West? It's not, yeah. for, in that moment, on the, one of the most popular podcasts in America, this liberal touchstone, for her not to use that opportunity to inform the public that there are even these other candidates in the race. For, as I say you're not ideologically aligned with RFK Jr., Marianne Williamson is literally running on the Bernie platform. And you could say something like, yeah. I don't know if I'm confident in her ability to su succeed, but I'm so glad that she's in the race keeping these issues alive. She, she could say, I'm so glad that someone as respected and renowned as Cornell West is in this race. Yeah. And I strongly support third parties and Green Party candidates. Absolutely did not say either of those things. And she could also say, if you're concerned about spoiler effects and Green Party candidates, then it is incumbent on Democrats to stop trying to protect their power by actively attacking every ranked choice voting effort, every every effort to get us passed first past the post voting that springs up, that mm -hmm, passes by ballot sure. initiative. But the reason that both Nothing the Democratic Party— Nothing would be Party, better for our country than getting that done. Both Democrats and Republicans oppose ranked choice voting of they do. because it preserves their power and enables them to Absolutely. say every single election cycle, you have to vote for us, even though we're substantive ignoring your interests mm -hmm. because otherwise the other guy is going to win. It's a binary choice between us or the people you hate and yeah. say, well, give us more choices. Change the system so that there are better choices. Well, of course they're not going to do that. They're never going to do that. So I said in the last five to ten minutes what I think could be very useful uh, for AOC to, to say using her platform. I am not invited on shows like Pod Save America. And I would like to see someone like AOC and the rest of the squad using their enormously important platform to advance the interests of the left and not advance the interests of the Democratic Party. But hey, or, I'm not the one in Congress. Or just their interests of themselves. More <laughs> <laughs> rising after this. According to a recent CNN headline, a new poll shows President Biden needs to be worried about potential Green Party nominee Cornel West. Let's watch. Axelrod tweeting, quote, in 2016, the Green Party played an outsized role in tipping the election to Donald Trump. Now, with Cornel West as their likely nominee, they could easily do it again. Risky business. This comes as less than 40 percent of Americans say they view Biden or Trump favorably. Almost one in four voters, in fact, say they don't like either candidate which is a key part of Cornel West's pitch. I just thought about all the creative, imaginative, courageous fellow citizens that I meet. And how do we end up with the two candidates? Trump on the one hand, Biden on the other. Good God. With Brother Trump, you've got uh, a, a gangster in the objective sense. And with Br Biden, again, I love the brother, but he's a hypocrite. And he's pushing toward World War III when you talk about the, what, what, what he has to say about China and Russia. Later, host Aaron Burnett discussed West's spoiler campaign with the panel. Let's watch some of that. 
for me personally, if Democrats seem to think that Cornell West is the problem, then they don't seem to recognize why they lost to President Trump in 2016 in the first place. It certainly was not because of Jill Stein. It was because there was a blue-collar revolt from people who felt as if the Democratic Party had left them behind. And so for me, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, you see somebody like Cornell West, who politics aside has dedicated his life to justice, the only thing they should have to say to him is thank you. And instead, uh, they send somebody like David Axelrod, the architect of the old Obama generation to go out there and take the hats to him, to try to marginalize him, which I think, again, plays into exactly everything he's talking about, that this is a party that is more concerned with the status quo than they are with the safety and security of black and brown communities. And I would also say uh, that we can't forget that this is the same Cornell West that, again, was ostracized because he wanted to support somebody like Bernie Sanders that wanted to push a little further, was ostracized because he wanted to have a black state of the union back with Tavis Smiley to talk about what was rightfully owed to a black community that came out in record numbers to help elect the first black president. So again, for me, uh, it just confirms what many believe is that the Democratic Party seemingly uh, has forgotten about what they claim is their core conviction, trying to make sure they can deliver results to multi-generational poverty and despair uh, for the people that effectively are the bedrock of that party. First of all, this idea that it's the Green Party's fault, that Donald Trump won, is wrong, and it needs to be rejected. It is not the Green Party's fault. It's not the Libertarian Party's fault when election goes one way. It's not the Constitution Party or anyone else. Your vote is not owed to any candidate. It's not a—and no, no one— no one puts a gun to your head at the poll and says, you have to choose one of these people. That's what these David Axelrod type people imagine. Well, there's a gun at your head, and if there was just one fewer choice on the ballot, you would, like, no. Polls show that a lot of Green Party voters, Libertarian voters, instead of third-party voters, would not vote if their candidate was not on the ballot. Some would vote for the Republican. Some would vote for the Democrat. Some would write someone in. Someone would just stay home. Also, it's just yeah. not—it's not like, oh, all of those votes are owed to someone else and would naturally accrue. Absolutely. And if you want a system where that is that would actually be we could have a ranked choice voting system where if your first candidate doesn't get you know what however it worked there are different constructions of this but doesn't get doesn't win then your votes do default you can say well I you know I do want this person more than this person and I would support that we should absolutely have that yeah. system but it's the two-party system that stands in the way of that uh, so they can't 100%. oppose that system and then say but your vote is owed to us. The Democratic Party and Republican parties both have actively tried mm -hmm. to undo Democratic efforts to pass ranked choice voting on ballot initiatives in state like, states like Maine. They are oppositional to it because they know they preserve their power by doing what David Axelrod is doing, which is to put a proverbial rhetorical gun to people's head and say that if you don't vote for the Democratic candidate, you are, in effect, voting mm -hmm. for Donald Trump. Now, I think that that uh, man in that clip was incredibly well-spoken and very uh, adeptly characterize what happened in 2016, something that the Democratic Party has refused to reckon with all of these years later. To them, there was no failure on the behalf of their historically unpopular candidate, the fact that the, D the DNC chose Hillary Clinton despite um, the the broad pu public uh, support of Bernie Sanders, the fact that it gave delegates from West Virginia, where Bernie Sanders won every single uh, county, to Hillary Clinton, the clear election rigging. They take no responsibility for any of that, and instead threw their lot in behind this historically unpopular candidate who, unsurprisingly, frankly, lost that contest. And as they're looking again toward Joe Biden, whose favorable numbers are low, 
much lower, I should note, than RF Kennedy's numbers, RFJ, RFJ, uh, RFK Jr.'s numbers. They will do this again and again because they fundamentally are a corporate party that wants to stay that way, only giving lip service, as that man mentioned, to the interests of historically marginalized communities that they depend on to ever win a single election. Well, in a different CNN panel discussion, uh, we have another clip. Uh, this was hosted by Allison Camerata. Commentators were decidedly less open to taking a different spoiler candidate, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., seriously. Let's watch. RFK Jr. has raised a lot of money. <laughs> See, you're laughing, but he has raised a How lot of money. Three million, I mean, three million in, in, within a three-day span at the end of the quarter, six million between April and June. Is it time for Democrats to take him seriously, Bakari? Absolutely not. You know how it's just Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Uh, is the embodiment of everything that's wrong with social media. Um, he is a caricature. He is, uh, you know, they say the apple doesn't far, fall from fall far from the tree. I mean, he's rolled off the orchard. Um, he is not his uncle. He's not his father. Um, he, I, I'm not sure why he's running for president other than just some reason to build up his own self. I, I don't think that Joe Biden should uh, pay attention to him. I don't think he should debate him. I think that he's a caricature, and I think he will fade away. Quickly, Scott. Coddled by, created by, and brought to you by the American left. RFK Jr. is fully a product of the Democratic Party and the American left. That's not true. It's not. Joe Rogan. Has, yeah, Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. Joe Rogan it wasn't, and him are it wasn't, not the It wasn't the Republican yeah. Party that brought this guy along for the last well, we don't want two, him. three decades. Uh, you can have him. Uh, all right. Oh, on no, that no, no, no. You could. <laughs> You can't give it away that easy. He's too, he's too tall for us, Bakari. You can tell it's a Friday night. You can tell it's a Friday night on the set. Two establishment acolytes pushing back and forth right. of someone who has captured legitimate populist energy. Neither understanding the appeal or the base or what's going on with RFK Jr. from different angles trying to say, because that, that was a remarkable job of two people, again, who ostensibly disagree. These are your talking heads arguing. But they're, they're both disdainful of him, and they, and they want to blame the other for having something to do with him. Yeah, I bet they um, can both agree on, like, Chris Christie oh, being so great. great. Yeah. <laughs> of course, RFK Jr. has some actual leftist views on energy and environment that come from a rich history of left Student activism. Student debt cancellation, affirmative on action. On e economics. Joe Rogan, too, uh, is in a, you could say, well, Joe Rogan endorsed, like Bernie Sanders. endorsed, he endorsed the most left candidate in the race. Yep. He endorsed him, the most left person. Um, but it is true that there are other issues that animate RFK Jr., that including uh, his views on COVID efforts, including, uh, you know, what he has to say about Ukraine, which is now, which, which is something the left believes, but is now you know, has kind of Republican appeal. It, it's it's a mess. It's messy. It reflects the messiness of the actual views of the American people, of working class people, of people who are not um, captured by the elites of either party, who are distrustful of sources of information, who have felt lied to for you know, the last few years with COVID and then going back and, you know, all the way back to Occupy Wall Street and the Iraq war and everything who don't trust what the what the people on that panel had to say. Yeah. And that's it's not specifically leftist, but it, it has it has roots in all of these things. And, and because it's because it's 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 not simple and it's not easy and there's not a like one word slur you can use to describe it. I mean, they try. It's anti-vax, right? Yeah. Then they don't understand it. Yeah. Bakari Sellers is deeply conservative. 
as a human being. He has a, a super PAC that he's aligned with that spent a million dollars to try to unseat Rashida Tlaib, who, whatever you want to say about the failures of the squad, has been among the most principled, actual leftists in Congress. Um, Bakari Sellers is an admitted, self-described APAC uh, sycophant who, like many of the black and brown elected in New York State in particular, have um, aggregated political power around themselves by aligning specifically with the Israel lobby um, and has, has had his personal politics driven largely by that affiliation as opposed to anything that's of interest to black and brown people who are living in the United States of America. But they get to call themselves progressive and hold themselves out as such because they are literally people with melanin in their skin. And frankly, I think it's disgusting that they're unable to recognize. You know, R.K. Jr. certainly had this fault, and we started this talking about Cornel West, mm -hmm. who is someone who has genuinely been a fighter for his entire life for the interests of marginalized communities like poor people, working class people, and racially marginalized communities in the United States for his entire life, and has respect from people across the political spectrum because of that, and is willing to talk to people across the aisle. To look at him running in the race— to look at RFK Jr. and laugh while he's laughing to the bank, frankly, with these amazing fundraising numbers from over the last week, and not even take a moment of humility to try to understand what's going on in the world. It's why gentlemen like those are going to be left far, far behind, and they're going to wake up one day and not recognize that the world that they're, they're, they're in. Because if there isn't a genuine left movement to fill the void, I don't know what it's going to be. There, there's all kind of opportunities for mm -hmm. faux populism to, to come in and advertise that they're going to do X, Y, and Z for the population. And working people really do need real solutions here. But you look at that and you see a Democrat laughing, it's not going to come from the Democratic Party. A conservative Republican, uh, an establishment Republican laughing, it's not going to come from that party. And that's why so many people are hopeful that some RFK Jr., Marianne, Cornell, even Trump, is willing to do something to push back against that brand of establishment politics. Mm, indeed. Well, we'll have more rising right after this. Elon Musk is continuing his feud with Mark Zuckerberg, calling the Meta founder a cuck on Twitter over the weekend in response to a tweet critiquing Twitter rival Threads content moderation policies. He later added, quote, I propose, he said this, sorry, I propose a literal dick measuring contest. There we, there we go. Yeah, with the ruler emoji and everything. Threads reportedly hit over 100 million users this morning, less than a week after its launch. For reference, Twitter has about 400 million users. Now, there was a, an article that got published in CNBC talking about how not only has Meta grown at a, a very rapid rate, um, but that Twitter traffic has slowed since the launch of Meta, I believe down about 5% in the first couple of days of uh, Thread's launch. And Twitter is down 11% compared to these same days in 2022. Whether or not that's significant and whether or not that holds is an interesting question. But I think it is worth noting that, that Thread's and Meta differs from some of the other attempts to compete with Twitter because it is tied in with folks' Instagram accounts, people can launch threads, um, follow all the people they follow automatically on Instagram and feel like they have a feed that's populated with their interests immediately without having to generate it over time the way that people have done over on Twitter. Yeah, I specifically didn't do that when I created my threads because I didn't, the, the people I follow on Instagram, are, I don't follow them for their like 
cogent political opinion, so I didn't want to follow them on threads. I mean, but the, the problem, really, is that I, you know, when people have added me automatically, or some people have added me, I, I've posted like two threads, one of which was, hey, what's, I, you know, yeah. I haven't really substantially contributed there yet, yeah. but I have like 600 followers, but I have 100,000 on Twitter, and, you know, and I have more on Instagram, uh, more than on threads, not as many as on Twitter. Yeah. So it's not like, I can import my following onto this platform, no. so it would be a lot of. I mean, you're the other. So you have like three hundred thousand. Yeah, it would Twitter be followers. It would be a lot of a lot work. of work. But that's the thing. Most people aren't super users of Twitter the way we are, and most Americans and most people in the world are not on Twitter whatsoever. Twitter has historically had one of the lowest um, shares of users of any of these. Okay, apps. But, sure, but let's say you're a super. Let's say you are a super user on Twitter. And what is the, why would you switch over to Threads? Well, I, one of the points that's made in this CNBC article is that Threads is attracting people who were never on Twitter to begin with, who maybe, you, you said that you're not interest, as interested in Threads because you don't care about your Instagram followers' political opinions. There are people who were never on Twitter because they're not interested in political opinions at all, but they would be interested mm -hmm. in having basically more like a Facebook feed or Facebook you know, uh, wall type scenario where people that they like celebrities and content creators and TikTokers or whoever are speaking more than just mm. talking through photos the way they are on Instagram. And I think this might create a whole new community that is useful in different ways that doesn't replace Twitter per se, but is a place that's softer with less politics and more memes and more culture and, and more, more people who like are normie. PR statements from celebrities and corporations. But I mean, there's this some of that. does not sound enjoyable to me at all. But there's also but some of that But if that's your thing, on, that can be your Twitter. thing. Look, at some point, just because we like Twitter, it's that we spend a lot of time on yeah. Twitter, we have to recognize that there is probably a reason why Twitter has never had as much market share as any of these other apps. It is not as accessible. Most people are not interested in politics to the extent that we are. And people want more diversity of stuff on their feed mm -hmm. than what Twitter offers, which is a lot of politics-heavy content. And we're, we're going to see over time what an app looks like if it's driven by different kinds of content creators. I don't know what's going to emerge as the culture of meta, but the uh, sorry of uh, Threads, mm -hmm. but the fact that it is a meta product and tied in with Instagram suggests to me that there will be, be a broader base of interest that might ultimately help the app succeed. Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of uh, inclination or concern that it's. Right, it's going to be a very sanitized or even you know, censored is not exactly the right word, but uh, you know, as we discussed last week, um, concerns that it's already having a content moderation mm -hmm. regime that is very hostile to different points of view. Which you know, that if that's what the site's going to be, that's again, it's Zuckerberg's site. It can be like that. Um, that's yeah. fine, but um, that's not really what I'm into, and what a lot of people are. I think a lot of people just want would like again Twitter the way Elon said it was going to be. I don't know that he's substantially delivered on that and, in fact, seems to have amplified a lot of highly specific right-wing accounts yep. such that it's become a conservative news organization, effectively. And, and Which that, it's, again, and it's his right to do he, that. He can do that, but a lot of people aren't going to stick around for it. Mm -hmm. Frankly, the only reason I'm inclined to stick around for it is because I have put in the work and have yeah. an audience on Twitter. I wouldn't, if I were the average Twitter user, and again, the average Twitter user like never tweets, has no followers, is mostly a passive observer, I would I would have no issue uh, jumping ship, but perhaps we should talk about the spiciest aspect of all of this, which is that as much as he maybe is posturing as being unbothered, tweets like the one where he wants to have a manhood measuring contest with Zuckerberg do seem to suggest that it's very, he's I'm not mad. Peace. I'm not mad. Don't say I got mad. <laughs> exactly. I mean, having 
400,000 followers, 400 million, I'm sorry, on Twitter versus 100 million on, on threads already, that's pretty significant. This is very different than any other Twitter competitor that has existed to date. And we saw how apoplectic uh, uh, Elon Musk got over even the suggestion that uh, uh, Matt Taibbi would use Substack when Substack launched a similar feature, although one that was not competitive in any way to Twitter, he basically shut down the entire of the Twitter files and that important journalistic effort over a personal dispute with Matt Taibbi over that app. Mm -hmm. And now it seems like he's willing to expose himself <laughs> in the name no, of challenging Mark Zuckerberg over this. Yeah, I, he was uh, trying to uh, fight Mark Zuckerberg before. Um, that seemed like healthier than the path we're going down now, or at least more entertaining than the path we're going down now. I'll I mean, what does it mean? I mean, can we just be frank for, <laughs> frank for a second? We have the richest person in the world, mm -hmm. um, a CEO of m multiple technology companies, a father of 10, uh, a man in his 50s. 50s, who is now engaging in this kind of behavior on social media. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, I'm not trying to be a, a, a scold or tone police people or anything like that. He can do what he wants. But this is obviously a departure from what we consider to be normal, respectable behavior. And it is the kind of behavior that gets CEOs in trouble because stock price, public confidence, et cetera, does bear relationship to the right, perceived capability and stability of the leader of a company. He's the head of a He's the head of a conservative media platform, and it is something that conservative viewers, et cetera, do seem to love by the example of Donald Trump, who is similarly a chaotic performance, says crazy things like this. I mean, this is very Trumpian to me. Wait a minute. Trump understands, and I can't believe I'm about to say this. Trump understands the humor of innuendo. This is not innuendo. Let's get a ruler out and measure our, our stuff is weird and cringe. Trump says things like, eh, DeSantis has small hands. Mm. You, you <laughs> fill in the dots. You know, you, you, you close the I gap. Mean, he, said, he said DeSantis might have been gay. He said, uh, he said all sorts of things. I think, I'm sorry, this is, you don't think it is weird. Like, this is getting into a weird territory. I, no, I do think it's weird, I, but I, I, I can't draw any distinction between it and, and the most popular figure on the right. This is the, just what the, this is what the, the day Donald Trump says, I want to pull my pants down in public and put my private parts on a table. Little next Marco to another wasn't CEO. all about who has the bigger you know what? That's called innuendo. <laughs> Me saying I want to do a public anatomy session where we perhaps get some doctors involved or some experts and we prostrate our private parts in the public view and have a clinical measuring scenario, two CEOs, hip to hip. I mean, Trump certainly got his surrogates to, I can't believe we're talking about this, to, <laughs> this is to so weird. comment on and say, you know, check out the cojones on, like there was a lot of that kind of conversation. This feels like an escalation to me. I don't know what All to right. tell you.
Uh, but if the people like it, the people like it. But a lot of other people are really liking, 100 million other people are really liking what's being offered over on the Threads app. So I'll be interested to see how that continues to develop and whether or not they're even really in competition. I think that yeah, is yet know. to be determined. Maybe maybe no social media is the answer. <laughs> maybe just less everything. Spend some time out there drawing, getting exercise, Probably says touch grass. Touch grass, that is what I'm saying. <laughs> We'll have to leave it there. <laughs> I guess so. Tomorrow on Rising, an interview with a Wuhan doctor reveals that early COVID cases were suppressed. We'll be talking about that new reporting from U.S. Right to Know, and you won't want to miss it. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. For those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. This is a great way to start the week. <laughs> See you back here tomorrow. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.